From St. Albans to St. George, from Morris Heights to Manhattan Valley, and right here in the Republic of Brooklyn, it's 5 p.m. in the five boroughs in the 62 counties of New York State. And so it's time for Max and Murphy, your interview and call-in show about the policies, politics, and people of New York. I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Jarrett, good to see you. How are you doing? You too. Um, so there's a lot going on, as usual, but um, today we had have a really good episode here, uh, an extra long sit-down with one key newsmaker, City Council Speaker Corey Johnson. We had a chance earlier today to sit with him at City Hall and have a good, long conversation. That's right. This is a pre-recorded conversation you'll be hearing shortly, and so it means we can't take your calls, which is a downside, but the upside is a wide-ranging conversation with the speaker. You know, right now, Ben, I think we've been spending the better part of this year so far focused on the state, all the issues around the state budget, policy discussions in the state, congestion pricing, marijuana. Last week, we talked about some things that are in the state's budget, uh, uh, I should say, docket now, like rent regulations. But now the focus really does move to the city as the city's budget process uh, gets going in earnest. We just had the council issuing its preliminary response to the mayor's budget. Um, and this is really where the focus is, and not just because of the of the budget. Right. And, and you know, the, we, this conversation with Speaker Corey Johnson comes in both the context of, you know, some granular stuff on the city budget. And some of that is they have to react now to the state budget being enacted. And they, they have several months where this process still plays out. The city budget is not due until July 1st. So they'll come to an agreement sometime in June. But now the city budget process can really get moving because the city knows basically what the state is imposing on it, sending its way in funding and things like that. But also this conversation is happening as the mayor continues traveling around the country, exploring or even it seems inching towards an announcement of a presidential bid, which is fascinating. And I did not think, I mean, I've said it on these airwaves, I did not think he was going to run. And now I think he is going to run. And also on a wonkier side, there is a charter revision conversation, which we talk about. So really, you have this sort of like past, present, future. <laughs> you have uh, multiple dimensions of time playing out in terms of the city thinking through the Charter Revision Commission about for the next maybe 20 years what its government is going to look like. At least. So yeah. a lot to talk about. We'll be back after the conversation. But right now, listen to our talk with City Council Speaker Corey Johnson. joined now by City Council Speaker Corey Johnson. Thanks for taking some time with us. We're here at City Hall. It's good to get out of the studio and uh, chat in the wilderness. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being in the Red Room at yeah. City Hall. Um, so we just want to start off with just a couple recent things um, in the news, but then we want to zoom out and ask you sort of generally about how it's going within the council and some other things. But um, this measles outbreak, mm -hmm. um, as far as I can tell, the city was a little bit slow here to to really get out there and, and declare an emergency. Is that your perspective as well? Well, I think that we should have declared an emergency before it hit almost 300 children. And the first sign of measles being in New York City in a substantial way in Brooklyn predominantly was last October. So this has been almost six months. It really didn't uh, begin to blow up and explode 
explode and hit more folks in the last few weeks is what we know uh, after uh, Jewish families were gathering for Purim is when we think that's when this really took on a more um, sizable population of people being infected and we're really concerned about Passover coming up next week and people recongregating as families and as a community and if more children and folks are now going to be uh, infected because of it so the real message is and I think the media has been doing a great job is getting people vaccinated especially children and this isn't a religious issue it's I guess centering in the ultra-orthodox community in Brooklyn but you've seen the biggest rabbis and community leaders come out and say get your children vaccinated this is not against any type of religious text so I'm glad the health commissioner uh, gave an emergency order I'm glad the mayor had a press conference yesterday but just like when we were dealing with Ebola and Legionnaires and other issues that are a public health crisis in New York City we have to be fast nimble and factual on how we get information out to protect as many New Yorkers as possible since the removal withdrawal of Amazon from their Queen's proposal, there's been a narrative that this has um, damaged the city, stained the city in terms of its appeal to businesses, that it's going to have a long-lasting hangover effect on New York's ability to attract new technology industries or other industries, especially to the outer boroughs. What do you think the long-term impact of Amazon and that deal's collapse is on the city, and how can we manage it? This could take up the entire time that we have today, because I think that it is a complicated subject, and I think that it wasn't handled in a nuanced way, probably by uh, maybe all folks involved. And I think that Amazon didn't leave because there were two difficult city council hearings on this subject, or because there were certain legislators who pointed out deficiencies in what they saw, the deal being struck uh, that was put on the table. You know, Amazon um, could have come here. They still could come here. The real question was around the package that was put together for them, the $2.5 billion in as-of-right subsidies and the $500 million in a direct cash grant to build their campus and headquarters in Long Island City. And I don't think that this portends to a larger trend or issue that's anti-business in the city of New York. Last year, in 2018, the city uh, gained almost 80,000 private sector jobs. The Amazon job proposal was going to gain 25,000 jobs jobs over 10 years, so two and a half thousand uh, jobs uh, a year, 2,500 jobs a year for 10 years. And since the Great Recession in 2009, the city's created 770,000 private sector jobs. Unemployment's at 3.9%, the lowest ever recorded. We're at 4.4 million private sector jobs. Uh, tech companies are coming here in my district. The biggest employer is Google. I live on the same block as Google. They've created almost 15,000 jobs since they decided to buy that building in Chelsea, the old Port Authority building and move here. Facebook has a presence here. Twitter has a presence here. You've seen smaller tech startups move here. So I don't think that you can draw a larger narrative and conclusion. This was a proposal that I've called sort of the Hunger Games in some way because Amazon created something that pitted city after city against each other. And the real questions here was, do, did they need this incentive package, subsidy package, and direct cash grant? to actually be able to uh, come to New York City. I, I want those jobs. I think we all want those jobs. And there are lots of companies that come here that don't have great labor records, but they're not companies that are getting public parcels of land and huge amounts of money. Uh, Michael Bloomberg, who is one of the most pro-business uh, people in the city of New York, 
said that they didn't need the subsidy package to come here. His philosophy, and I think that's, that's actually a good philosophy on attracting business, is if you want business to come here, create a safe city with low crime, create a city with good schools, create a city with good parks, create an attractive city that is going to be a city that businesses and people want to come to. And Amazon should still want to come here, but they also, if they're going to come here, they do have to answer difficult questions. And it seemed like they didn't want to do that. Well, right. I'm glad you said that at the end because, I mean, those hearings did seem to matter, right? I mean, and, and it wasn't just about the incentives. There was the unionization, the ICE stuff. I mean, you guys gave them some tough questions, as you said, and, and they should certainly be ready and able to answer those, and they were not clearly that great at answering them. But, but those hearings mattered. I mean, you, you guys put them up there for a pretty big grilling. Yes, and part of the reason why I thought it was important to have that type of debate at the city council is because the way the deal was announced, the land use process that's existed for many decades was subverted uh, by the city and the state, the de Blasio administration and the Cuomo administration in doing a general project plan. You know, the vast majority of land use applications that come here, rezonings that come here, individual site rezonings that come here, they come here through a negotiated process where the community has a chance to weigh in. And at the end, 99% of all ULERPs uh, make it to the end. That wasn't the case here. And so we didn't have the authority we typically had. And uh, council members were, of course, upset about that. But also there were difficult questions that the public didn't have answers to. And when the deal was announced and in the aftermath of the deal, no one in a public setting or fashion was asking the questions. The press was talking about some of these issues. And many of the questions that were asked were questions that came up through investigative reporting, through outlets who were pointing out these issues that Amazon had, and council members went off of that. So, I mean, I, I don't think it's good that the city of New York lost potentially 25,000 jobs, but I also don't think it portends to a larger issue. We could have an economic recession. We could have a downturn. Doesn't look like it's happening in the next year, uh, but we had a very volatile December and January in the stock market, which affected the city's revenue and the budget that we're negotiating right now. And I do, th I do still think New York is a safe and healthy place for business to come to, and we see that every single day. You mentioned the budget. The council just released its response to the mayor's preliminary. What do you see as the highlights of that? <clears throat> I think that there are three main issues that we're looking at. The first is really not a sexy one, but it dovetails on the conversation we just had about ensuring that uh, the city is going to uh, be in a good financial place if things uh, do slow down in the near future. And that's, we put in a request for $250 million in budget reserves. Last year, the council was able to secure $225 million in the adopted budget. And in the last few years, the council's been the main driver and wanting to set additional money aside for when the downturn comes. Our budget reserves right now are pretty high, but they're not as high as they need to be from what the controller has said, from what the Citizens Budget Commission has said, from what the Independent Budget Office has said, and other outside groups. So we're working to get there. The other thing that is really important to me, and I've said this since my election as speaker, is I think we have to strengthen the social safety 
safety net in New York City. That means social service programs. Last year we fought for fair fares, and that was one of the main signature achievements of the budget last year. This year we call for an investment in all types of similar programs, a, a campaign that was put together by advocates for children in the foster care system called Fair Futures. Uh, we are asking for more money in education. Last year we got an increase of $125 million in fair student funding, which goes directly to schools uh, that really need new money to hire guidance counselors and teachers and do additional programming. We asked for $200 million this year, and the list goes on in a variety of other important programs. And the last thing that is a running theme of the preliminary budget response is pay parity. Pay parity for certain sectors of the workforce in New York City. Right now, child care providers in New York City are uh, really not making the money that they need, and there's been a competition between uh, pre-K going up and running and the child care providers being poached to work in pre-K, and they're losing all sorts of uh, money from the daycare council, which negotiates the contract. So we put in a request for $89 million to create pay parity for those child care workers that have really been suffering, and then we ask for additional money for pay parity for district attorneys and defense providers that are doing indigent defense work. So that's sort of a running theme of budget reserves enhancing and strengthening the social safety net and looking at greater pay parity across the municipal workforce in New York City. Is it part of the general theme? There's no sort of big signature thing this year like fair fares, but there's these, you know, key investments that, you know, the budget can't keep growing too much. I mean, there's there can't keep being this budget. Are you are you how concerned are you? I mean, even if there's more savings put aside, this budget's growing by a few billion dollars again. Um, how concerned are you? You know, you're going to be getting into a place in the next couple of years where your term as speaker's wrapping up, the mayor's you know tenure's wrapping up. Are you concerned about the fiscal health that you'll be leaving you know the city in at, at that juncture? Is it you know how, how worried are you there because this budget is really growing? Yeah, I think when you are negotiating a budget and looking at the current fiscal year that we're in and the next fiscal year which we're negotiating, you actually can't just look at those two years. You have to look three years out, five years out. You have to look towards the future on what the trends are for the city of New York. These things are imprecise and it's sort of uh, uh, an art, not a science when you're trying to predict what the economy is going to look like. But <clears throat> I do think that it's really important that we set aside additional money in the budget reserves. And one thing I didn't just mention, but it's is equally as important, is we came up, the council on our own, separate from the $750 million program to eliminate the gap savings plan that the administration announced a couple of months ago, we came up on our own in this budget response with over a billion dollars in saving in the current fiscal year that we're in and in the next fiscal year that's coming up that we're negotiating. So we identified over a billion dollars over two fiscal years, separate from the $750 million and wanting $250 million in reserves. So this isn't just a spend, 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 uh, put more money into new programs. It's a robust document that looks at the revenue side, the capital budget, the expense budget, uh, budget reserves, all of these different things, and a budget forecast where we don't entirely agree with the Office of Management and Budget. We have different numbers than them. 
that's sort of always the case. Usually, they're more conservative in the revenues they. They're, yeah, they're more conservative. IBO is typically a little more, uh, if you want to say, liberal in what they think, mm -hmm. and we're sort of in in between. We think the porridge is sort of just right mm -hmm. on this, not too hot or not too cold. So um, those numbers, at the end of the day, we have to come to some type of agreement. A lot of it depends on the revenue that comes in over the next couple of months, and that will inform the final number that we have to work towards when we adopt the budget in June. Right. Folks should just know quickly that your preliminary budget response will then influence negotiations with the mayor as he then releases an executive budget plan, and the process keeps going till sometime in June you'll agree on a budget for the next fiscal year. That's right. You're listening to Max and Murphy on WBAI. We're speaking with Speaker Corey Johnson. And the housing crisis, obviously, is still a big topic of conversation in the city, particularly a perceived mismatch between the mayor's housing plan and the need that is reflected in the homeless shelter account. Um, there's been discussion in the council proposed by Councilmember Salamanca mm -hmm. about requiring a set-aside and subsidized properties of 15% of units for people coming out of the shelter system. Um, the budget response mentions that issue, but doesn't impose, as far as I can read, a strict set-aside. What do you think the trajectory of that issue is? I support Councilmember Salamanca's bill on the 15% set-aside. It has a veto-proof majority of sponsors in the council. The administration, the de Blasio administration, has concerns about um, the curtailment of mayoral powers and being able to set housing policy, and that's one of their arguments. Uh, we don't have a legal uh, concern. We think we do have the legal right as a body to be able to do this. I think the administration is coming along, not coming along where I think they're going to outright support the bill, but they're looking for ways to increase the set-aside through the Housing Preservation and Development Agency's term sheets. Term sheets are the documents that are used on every single deal and where they lay these things out. And they're saying that project by project, they could actually increase to 15% to 13% to in some places more than 15% depending on the deal. I think that we're in a homelessness crisis. That's not new news. Uh, me saying that here today, you see it with the numbers every night. I think last night the shelter system had 61,000 people uh, in New York City shelters, 23,000 of whom are children under the age of 16 years old. You have somewhere between four and 7,000 people living unsheltered on the streets of New York City. And those numbers don't include runaway homeless youth shelters, domestic violence shelters, and other shelters. So when you add all those numbers together, you get to almost 75,000 people who are considered homeless. And that doesn't count people who are unstably housed, who are couch surfing and staying with friends and neighbors and family members. That number gets much higher. We saw the number last year that at one point during the school year, 10% of students, almost 100,000, were deemed homeless uh, at one point during the year. So we have a crisis. So that means when you have a crisis, you have to come up with multiple strategies to fix that crisis. I think the 15% set aside is one major thing that we have to do. The mayor's housing plan has been ambitious. He went from wanting to create 200,000 units to 300,000 units of affordable housing. But the number of units going to homeless families is not enough. The administration likes to say they've moved 100,000 people out of the shelter system. Even doing that, we still have a crisis. So clearly, we have to do more. And I think we have to dig deeper on lower uh, lower bands of area median income for lower income people, a greater set aside for homeless individuals and families. The budget uh, document that we've been talking about calls for a greater investment in supportive housing, people who are living on the street 
streets of New York City who have a difficult time being in the shelter system because they have a dual diagnosis of uh, substance misuse and addiction uh, coupled with untreated uh, mental health issues. And so you have to you have to attack this from multiple sides to be able to solve the issue. I think the campaign that's been waged by the providers, the woman I met, uh, Ben sitting in the exact chair she was sitting in two weeks ago, Ms. Flowers, who came and confronted mm -hmm. the mayor at the Y in Park Slope. I sat here with her and a bunch of other long-term homeless people in this room two weeks ago talking about the vouchers that they have. Landlords aren't accepting those vouchers. So in the budget, we call for the Human Rights Commission to staff up the office to go after landlords who are uh, discriminating on the basis of source of income. So there's a variety of things we have to do, but on the Salamanca bill, I support it. We're still negotiating with the administration. I'm not sure if we'll get to there, but it's something that the council feels very strongly about. You had the mayor uh, bring Vicki Bean back to the administration and that, you know, she's going to be the new deputy mayor for housing and economic development, formerly the housing commissioner. And she said at the press conference, she was asked about that bill. I assume maybe somebody mentioned that to you or you saw, but, um, you know, she said we need more flexibility than that would allow. You sort of recapped that perspective from the administration, but it was interesting to hear her say that. But at the same time, she and the mayor both said that the housing plan is going to get some adjustments. So we'll see what they have in mind on that. You mentioned, obviously, negotiating with the mayor in this crisis of homelessness. Um, this budget process is going on. There's all sorts of other policy being discussed. Is he engaged? Do you feel, you know, there's obviously questions about his travel. Um, have, do, you, do you feel like he is with you here when he needs to be talking about key issues facing the city? I met with the mayor yesterday, and we discussed uh, the budget response and a variety of other issues that are important to the council and to the administration. You know, I think being mayor is probably one of the most difficult jobs, uh, elected jobs in the country besides being president. Uh, and it's a 24-7 job. I'm not sure I could comprehend trying to do this job while also traveling to early primary states, but I do think the mayor thinks he has some achievements that he wants to tout, low crime, decreasing stop and frisk, improving what he considers to be uh, relations across the city, universal pre-K, and a variety of other measures. I'm not in the position to give the uh, mayor political advice, but, you know, uh, it's busy being speaker of the council, probably not as busy as being mayor of the city of New York. It's busy in a different way with everything that happens here with 50 of my colleagues and the staff and all the work that we have to do on a daily basis and being a council member for my district uh, and serving the constituents that elected me. So I don't feel like there's been a level of disengagement from the mayor. I feel very, very busy and my staff and his staff are in constant touch. I personally call commissioners all the time. If I have an issue, I don't just go directly to the mayor. I personally call deputy mayors all the time. And so uh, I don't deal directly just with the mayor, but, you know, it's we're in a time where there are a lot of issues. We have a housing crisis. We have a homelessness crisis. There is some precariousness around the budget. There uh, are still major, major issues across the city as it relates to affordability and needing greater transparency as it relates to police accountability. So all these issues still exist. I still think there's a lot to do here in New York City. And so I guess that gets, you, you sort of mentioned it, you know, having 50 council members in your district. And so let's zoom zoom back for a second. Sure. Um, 
you've been speaker a little over a year. Uh, what are some? It of the, feels like a lot longer. <laughs> well, that's it. Yeah, that, I mean, that's sort of the question. What are some of the big, I don't know, lessons learned? You know, what have you learned? You know, you wanted this job, obviously, and you, you worked hard to get the support of your colleagues to get it. What are some of the things that have surprised you about it or that you've learned in the role? Is it crazier than you thought it would be? More demands than you ever imagined or anything like that? I feel like this is a question that my therapist asks me all the time, too. Um, and what color is your parish? Uh, exactly. Uh, I would say um, the job is a lot harder than I realized. It's a lot more difficult, and I'm not sure that, and they probably say this for anyone who becomes mayor, I'm not comparing this job to being mayor or president or many jobs. Um, there's nothing that, I guess, really fully prepares you for it. I don't think any of the work that I did as a rank-and-file councilman before I was speaker prepared me to come in and be able to balance the interests and needs of 50 members and the land use division and finance division and the newly created oversight and investigations division and the legislative division and negotiating with the mayor and dealing with the governor and dealing with the advocates and dealing with a very uh, active press corps here in City Hall. So those things have been a challenge, but I'll say I love it. Even when it's hard, and this week was hard, the last two months have been hard uh, given everything we've had to deal with here at the City Council. Um, I still love it. I still feel extraordinarily grateful. I don't want to uh, get too saccharine on you, uh, but you know, I say this, I moved to New York City at 19 years old with two bags, knowing one person because there was something about this city that I felt like uh, was a major draw to me that spoke to me. And to be here less than, I moved here in May of 2001, so 18 years, um, to be able to run for the city council and be speaker of this body is really a dream come true, even on the really difficult days. So I've learned a lot. I learn a lot every single day. And the thing that I find, actually, the, the, the two things I find the best about this job is number one, when you do things that have a real tangible, immediate impact on people's lives. You know, I'll give you an example. I, I got two nights ago, I was at an event where it was an event for transgender youth and they gave me this very sweet award. And there were a variety of people, a bunch of you walked up to me and said to me, that bill that you passed when you were chair of the health committee in 2014 that allowed us to change our birth certificates, I'm getting the chills saying it to you right now, we changed our birth certificate, it's made our lives so much easier being a New Yorker. So to be able to do something like that and you hear the immediate impact on people's lives is very moving. And then the second thing that is amazing is the staff here at the city council are so talented, are so smart, and I learn so much every single day. I could literally probably just pick a single subject and someone who works the council could walk over to me and give me uh, just a long exposition on what the subject is. So I am constantly learning. I feel like a sponge in figuring out new strategies and new ways to help improve the city of New York, and that those are two of the greatest benefits of this job. In the past few months, you may have just alluded to this, you've had to discipline a few members, uh, Councilmember Diaz about his comments on the LGBTQ community, mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Yeager about Palestine, and recently uh, Councilmember Brudemczyk about uh, personal conduct. Mm -hmm. um, how have you, what has guided you through those controversies, um, and specific to the allegations in each, what is the appropriate place for free speech in a body like this, and what does due process look like when a person 
person is a public official with public responsibilities. How do you how do you balance all that? These are complicated questions, and I think it's a case by case scenario in some instances. So we have free speech here at the city council, and you all you can say anything you want, but just like uh, there's free speech uh, amongst the general public, there are sometimes consequences to what you say, and I think you're held to a higher standard when you're an elected official and your words take on more meaning and have more gravity. So when you use language or remarks that dehumanizes populations in New York City, that creates division, that does not come from a place of healing, I think uh, is really problematic. And again, there isn't a hard and fast rule here, but both in the uh, instance of Councilmember Diaz Sr. and in the instance of Councilmember uh, Yeager, I did not immediately say that they should be disciplined. What I immediately said in both instances is I want them to be able to clarify their remarks and potentially apologize for what they said and use it as a teaching moment and a learning experience and to hopefully heal. And in both instances, that's not what happened afterwards. And so that's why the action was taken as it was. The council member Grudenchik situation, I can't comment on fully because it's still going through a disciplinary process, but I'll say that uh, we have to make sure that any person who works at the city council feels safe and respected, and that is one of my responsibilities as speaker, and I'll continue to do that. But these things are difficult. They're painful when you're dealing with colleagues and you have to impose discipline. I said this uh, a couple of weeks ago at a pre-stated press conference that one of the things that I've done, I'm not saying other speakers haven't done this, I wasn't privy to conversations, but anything that in any way makes it to me, that I get tipped off, that there's something going on or there's a complaint, I immediately say uh, either send it to standards and ethics if it falls into that category of discipline or a violation of council policy, or I say let's deal with this right away uh, as a body collectively. And so we haven't swept anything under the rug. We haven't uh, said, well, that's not going to go to standards and ethics. And by the way, there have been some things that have gone to standards and ethics where it was found that no one did anything wrong. So no one learned about it because there was an investigation. People were interviewed and never came out in the public because people got their due process. And I think in those instances, those members are happy that they got heard. Witnesses were interviewed. Nothing came out about it. It didn't come out in the press um, because we handled it in a very professional way. But these things are painful. They're difficult. Yesterday wasn't easy here at the council. Uh, in the middle of February with Councilmember Diaz Sr. wasn't easy. And we have to handle each instance in the most appropriate and sensitive way. Let's shift a little bit um, legislatively or, or just, you know, here at the council in terms of upcoming agenda. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about the budget response and some of the other things that are on your mind. Are there other key things that folks should know, that New Yorkers should know, that are sort of at the top of your agenda coming up? Obviously, in your state of the city, you pledged legislation to create a master plan for yes. city streets, so I assume that legislation's coming. Um, you want to take a second on that and then anything else that people should know? Uh, 
uh, you know, is coming down the, the road? Yeah, well, uh, when I had my State of the City, the beginning of March, uh, my vision and what I focused on was really just on mass transit and transportation, no other issues, even though, as we've talked about uh, in this interview, there are many other issues, <laughs> education and homelessness and housing and development and jobs and economic activity, all these things we could all uh, probably do a single speech on uh, and the importance of New York City and hopefully creating a vision for the future of the city. And I look forward to doing that in the months to come and in the years to come. But uh, my state of the city really just focused on how transit is the lifeblood of New York City, of our economy. It's what keeps our city moving. And we are at a place where I don't think it's working for the city of New York. So I called for municipal control of subways and buses. And I talked about the reason why that is important. The MTA is set up basically to deflect all accountability. And I have this strange cognitive dissonance feeling on congestion pricing where I've always been a huge proponent and supporter, but the way that it was implemented, I think, really makes everything worse in what I talked about in the state of the city, giving more power to the state, giving more power to the MTA, giving power to the Triborough Bridge and Tunnel Authority, which is now going to control the streets of New York through a six-member transit mobility review board with one person recommended by the mayor and multiple people from the suburbs who will set the toll prices, where the transponders and gantries go, have oversight over the streets of New York City. Exemptions. I think exemptions. It's taking us in the <laughs> wrong direction from what I called for in my state of the city. And so I think transportation is the great equalizer. The reason why I was a couple of minutes late to this interview is because I took the subway uh, here this morning to City Hall and uh, it was delayed. We sat in the tunnel uh, coming down here between uh, Canal Street and Chambers Street for a few minutes. And so these are issues that are very, very important. But coupled with that vision on municipal control, Control. I talked about a master plan for the city of New York. You're going to see legislation introduced here at the city council uh, in the next month or so that detail what that legislation we think should be on creating a master plan for the streets of New York City. And it didn't get any play yet uh, in the budget response, but we called for a very sizable investment in putting more money into bike lanes and bus lanes and pedestrianized areas across city. So these are all things that we're going to talk about moving forward. And I think those are pieces of that master plan, right? That's right. I was gonna, yeah, I was going to mention that in this in this part of the conversation. So, yes. so those are sort of investments you're calling for, and your legislation will maybe pull the pieces together a little bit about how it's all supposed to come together. Exactly. So the legislation will will call for the plan, but we also call for budget investments that will actually help ensure that uh, that plan could actually be executed in a way on bus lanes and bike lanes and pedestrianizing areas. Uh, these are things that you can't just do through a document and a plan. You need the money to do them as well. The Charter Revision Commission is looking at a lot of different issues, um, and it's obviously at a early, relatively early stage of its deliberations. When you look at it, what's one thing that you, you really, really want to come out of that? They have this huge menu they're looking at. Is there a particular change that you really, in your heart of hearts, hope is, is in there, or any particulars? This is super wonky and geeky stuff, and I think the vast majority of people listening to this, though you have very informed listeners who love city government, I think we may get very granular and in the weeds Let's of the it. New York Let's City Charter. Uh, but um, you're right, Jared. I mean, I, I do think the, the menu that's on the table 
is really um, uh, wide and far-reaching on what we're looking at and what the commission's looking at. So for folks that don't know, the current city constitution, city charter we're operating under was basically created in 1989 when the previous Board of Estimate was ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court and city government needed to be reorganized. So the city council went from 35 members to 51 members. We abolished the Board of Estimate. The council then got land use authority and budget authority previously really only had a legislative authority and some oversight authority. So government changed in big ways. And every mayor since then, from uh, Dinkins to Giuliani to Bloomberg to de Blasio, they've all appointed either one or multiple charter revision commissions during their time as mayor. But each of those charter revision commissions that the mayor appointed, which they're allowed to do, really had a singular focus. And they didn't look at the broad charter itself and how it should be updated. So this commission uh, wanted to to take, after 30 years, 1989 and now to 2019, a wide look at the charter. Some of the areas that I'm really interested in, again, this is going to get super geeky, but some of the areas I'm interested in is I think that we need to look at independent budgeting uh, for checks and balances in New York City. I, I think uh, I was uh, acting public advocate for uh, about 75 days, and I do think that that office and the Comptroller's office and the community boards and the borough president's office and the conflict of interest board should all probably have an independent budget that is not tied to whoever the mayor is or the speaker is. The campaign finance board has that. They have an independent budget that's pegged to uh, a, a certain data point uh, in the budget. You guys do love the data point mm -hmm. stuff. Um, uh, so I think that's one interesting thing. And then I think we also uh, have to look at, we're looking at budget transparency. Right now you have what are talked about as units of appropriation. You could have a unit of appropriation in the police department, in the budget. That will be one line that will say $200 million with no detail. So the press and the council can't do its job to understand what's in that $200 million. The council's calling for in the budget response, uh, over 120 new units of appropriation that we just laid out, but we think you could actually improve this through the city charter, and also we, answer, we want some um, some issues on revenue estimates that come in that inform the budget and improving that in the council uh, in the charter commission as well. So those are your big, those are your... I don't know if those are the big ones. Ranked choice voting is uh -huh. something I'm interested uh -huh. in, um, potential advice and consent, uh, expanding the CCRB, looking at greater police accountability through the charter itself. These are all things that I'm interested in. No change to the land use process? The land use process, I think there could be greater transparency on, but I do have some concerns that... There is a fair share issue in the city of New York. You have too many homeless shelters and methadone clinics and waste transfer stations that are cited in communities of color. But I'm afraid that if you change the charter in a way that's more restrictive, it's going to be harder to cite places like homeless shelters that we need. And so this is a very tricky balance. I do think there needs to be some more community input and community planning that needs to be done. But I don't want it done in a way that will empower nimbyism in New York City where communities that have already been resistant to these really important facilities will have greater leverage and authority to not let them happen when they're totally necessary in the moment that we're living in. So it's it's tricky. And the Euler process has actually sort of worked over the last many years. Again, the vast majority of projects make it to the finish line. You have a clock. It goes from the community board to the board president, to the city planning commission, to the council. It's worked. Are there ways it can be improved? Yes. The Charter Revision Commission is looking at that. So you're listening 
listening to Max and Murphy on WBI Radio. We're joined by City Council Speaker Corey Johnson. We've got maybe five or eight more minutes with you. Appreciate, However long you want. Appreciate all the time. All right, 20 or 30. Sure. Uh, <laughs> um, so let's talk a little politics. Did you want to ask? Okay, yeah, let's talk a little politics here. Um, 2021 is going to be crazy. Uh, the citywide seats, the borough presidencies, all these city council seats, you're cringing. Um, <laughs> You seem to very clearly be set on running for mayor. I know you haven't officially declared. Is there anything you can think of that would make you not run? I mean, at this point, you know, would besides it be? This, besides this interview. <laughs> besides this interview. Would if it be? we have to do another one of these interviews, I am definitely not running. I'm out. Um, I, and you don't get, you know, you don't seem to get the sort of groundswell you're expecting, or have you already gotten that? I mean, I see stuff on social media where it seems like people are pretty excited. So is there anything that would tip the scale? towards, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to do this? I, in my first year as speaker, I did zero fundraising, and I didn't set up any type of political infrastructure for 2021. When other candidates who, again, have not formally declared, Controller Stringer, Borough President Adams, Borough President Diaz Jr., they've been raising money and uh, setting up a good political infrastructure for themselves for uh, a few years now, or maybe more than a few years. And I, in my first year, I really just wanted to focus on being a good speaker, getting some accomplishments under my belt, trying to lead the body in a way and actually get some things done for the city of New York and not focus on raising money in the political side. But what I realized was if I wanted this option, I needed to start to put the infrastructure in place. And the fundraising strategy and plan that I announced of only taking contributions of $250 or less, not taking contributions from real estate developers or anyone who work at their firms, not taking corporate PAC contributions, not taking um, uh, money from uh, uh, folks who do biz, uh, who work at lobbying firms. Uh, it makes it actually harder to, to fundraise uh, because all those folks I just named are sitting on millions of dollars, some of them. So I needed to start early to even have the option to be able to do this two years from now. I didn't really want to, um, when I was actually- This race is really going to start in 2020, by the way. I mean, I guess so, but it's going to be hard in the midst of a presidential campaign. That's true. And so part of me thinks that with the state legislature moving the primary from September to June, you're going to see a real seven-month sprint from November of 2020 to June of 2021 in a condensed time frame. So, I mean, I love the city of New York. I talked about that earlier, and I think we face big challenges. I think I've done a, a pretty good job as speaker in my first year, and I think I have a vision I want to share with the city. And so I look forward to doing that, both in my time as speaker and on the campaign trail. But again, nothing is set in stone. Uh, things could change. The world could change. Who knows what's going to happen? You can't predict these things. I always like to say, who thought that Elliot Spitzer would be governor for less than two years? Who thought Andrew Cuomo would lose to Carl McCall in 2002 and come back and be attorney general four years later? Who thought that uh, Christine Quinn, who was a prohibitive frontrunner for mayor, uh, and Bill de Blasio was in fourth place? Who thought it would end up that way? You never know what's going to happen. New York politics is actually crazier than any political ecosystem in the United States of America. You cannot predict these things. And so all you can do is put one foot in front of the other, plan, uh, be your 
yourself, get some accomplishments under your belt, and hopefully when the time comes, uh, the, the moment meets some good luck and some hard work, and you have the opportunity to make your case. We're, we are, as you mentioned, many months out from that moment. But based on what you think and feel now, what do you think 2021 will be about? Will it be a referendum on Bill de Blasio uh, or about something else? And you mentioned your vision for the city. Can you talk a little bit, a little bit about what is, what is the Johnson vision for New York? I think it's hard to predict uh, what that moment in time will be like. I think the most animating issue in the 2013 mayoral uh, primary and race was the really blatant overuse and I would say racist issue of stop, question, and frisk in the city of New York. And it was an issue that animated not just black and Latino uh, New Yorkers, but there were many, many white New Yorkers who were infuriated by what they saw happening on the streets of New York City as well. I don't know if there's going to be a single defining issue that will come up in 2021 like Stop, Question, and Frisk was at that time. And I do think that after 12 years of the Bloomberg administration, at that moment in time, the city was ready for something new and ready for a change. And so it's hard to predict what that issue could be uh, two and a half years out. My vision for the city of New York is uh, we have to talk about the affordability crisis that has been gripping the city of New York. We have to talk about the homelessness crisis that's been gripping the city of New York. We have to talk about the failure of our buses and our subways. We have to talk about needing a better school system for the 1.1 million school children of New York City. All of these issues, I think, are really important issues. <clears throat> and we are the most diverse city in the United States of America. Our city's growing rapidly. We're uh, going to hit 9 million people by 2040, it looks like now. And so you have to be able to plan for the future future. I want to talk about all of those issues that matter in a meaningful way. It's funny, you know, there are issues that I think New Yorkers in any neighborhood they look in, look at to see is the city doing well? And I'll give you an example. <clears throat> I think crime is a key indicator of how people feel about the city. But I also think that in a city of hundreds of distinct neighborhoods with their own names and tens of thousands of individual blocks, people, and I mean this in a in a loving and affectionate way towards New Yorkers, people are very parochial about their individual block, their individual park, their individual subway stop, their individual local school, their local small business. And if those things aren't going well, if there is a major homelessness on their corner, if their small business can't survive, if their local park is in disrepair, they feel like the city's not doing well. And I think you have to be able to talk about a broad vision for the city of New York, on the issues that I talked about, but also do things neighborhood by neighborhood, block by block, that people feel like are improving their lives. And I think there's a way to do that. Yeah, I think Ed Koch, we're sitting in the Red Room, we're looking at the foot of the Brooklyn Bridge. When the transit strike happened, he was standing at the foot of that bridge screaming, I'm with you, I'm with you, how am I doing? You know, some of this job, whoever the next mayor is, is a little bit of theater, and that's okay. You had, there was a huge fire in Sunset Park. Uh, last week. Terrible. Over 50 families majorly affected. Some of what I think you have to do is show up at the scene. You have to be there. You have to show the empathy. You have to be out there. I ride the subway every single day. I talk to New Yorkers on the platform every day. I think these are some of the things that whoever the mayor of the city of New York needs to do uh, moving forward. And if I was mayor, that's what I would do. We'll get you out of here on this. In that vein, 
there's a lot made the conventional wisdom it's very hard to become mayor from being city council speaker what do you make of that well, there haven't been many city council speakers. True. Uh, so I'm Just not sure. Everybody's tried. I'm not sure this is an exact science. I'll say this. I, I think that, um, and I'm not criticizing pundits or prognosticators or the press or political insiders who want to draw conclusions from, from history. Uh, I think that's actually helpful uh, when you're looking at things. But I would say that. I really believe that there are a few things that you need to be able to do. You have to be authentic. You have to be yourself. You have to not uh, BS people. Uh, and I think you have to have real accomplishments to point to. You have to be accessible. So that's not me criticizing any of the previous speakers who ran for mayor. Uh, but there, there are different moments in time. There are different moments in time of what the city's facing. And um, I, I'm going to just be myself. Uh, you know, I'm going to lip sync to Lady Gaga on Twitter, and I'm going to take the subway every single day, and I'm going to be a cheerleader for the city of New York, the city that's been so good to me and that I love so much. And, and I don't know. I mean, who was the last borough president that was mayor? David, David Dinkins. Dinkins yeah. uh, who was the well, last? Well, you were also acting public advocate, so. You that's know. true. <laughs> who was the last uh, controller that was mayor? Uh, Abe Beam. I mean, these things are not. Uh, an exact science in any ways. I mean, Rudy Giuliani wasn't an elected official. Uh, David Dinkins was borough president. Mike Bloomberg wasn't an elected official. No one thought Bill de Blasio had a chance uh, to be mayor. Um, you know, so these things, Ed Koch beat an incumbent, Abe Beam. So these are things, it's very hard to predict. I know we want to try to come up with an exact mathematical formula to figure this out. No. There's no way to figure it out. We'll see what the defining issue is. We'll see what the field of candidates are. We'll see who connects with the broad audience of New Yorkers who has a message that resonates and the voters will make their decision. I look forward to hopefully making my case if I make the final decision to take the plunge, uh, but I'm excited. I think the city, there's a lot of exciting things we could do in the city of New York. It's the greatest city in the world and it's still, it's still a city of dreams and aspirations for the folks that come here. Well, we're going to have a chance to talk to you multiple times before. Oh yes, that. I look forward so to we'll it. we'll have plenty of other chances. City Council Speaker Corey Johnson, thanks for joining us. Thanks for that grilling. <laughs> Listening to Max Murphy here on WBAI Radio, 99.5 FM, WBAI.org, listener-sponsored non-commercial radio with Ben Max from Gotham Gazette and Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. You just heard our extended sit-down with City Council Speaker Corey Johnson from earlier today at City Hall. We covered a lot, Jarrett. Uh, some things that stood out to you? I'll start at the end and him talking about 2021. And I think it was interesting that he, he mentioned that it was unclear whether this was going to be a referendum on Bill de Blasio or not. But then in his answer about his vision for the city, I think implicit in that, at least, embedded in that, intentionally or not, was a real critique about some of the ways the mayor has run the city, not so much on policy points, but on the style of leadership. You know, Johnson talking about being this guy who rides the subway, <laughs> who would go to fire scenes, who would do the Ed Koch talking on the bridge thing, um, really a discussion about style, which I think is fascinating because, obviously, we're very early in this potential 2021 race. We only know of the names, really, of four kind of big candidates, all men who are out there that, mm -hmm. you know, I assume is going to change somewhat or evolve somewhat. 
But on a lot of those points, especially with someone like Scott Stringer, you know, Johnson ideologically on policy points is going to be fairly hard to distinguish. So I think a lot of it will come down to policy and the, uh, sorry, style, and style, yeah. um, style and approach and the personality of being in office, which frankly is something that I think has been one of the points of tension in de Blasio's uh, handling of the mayoralty is not so much what he's done, but sort of how he's done it and how he's talked about it and how he's interacted or not interacted with New Yorkers. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no question that the 2021 race will be in some significant part a referendum on de Blasio, both, as you're saying, in style and personality and on some policy issues. And Speaker Johnson talked about what some of those policy issues clearly will be, housing and homelessness right at the top, obviously. I mean, even as ambitious as the current mayor's plans are, uh, at least on the affordable housing front, there's lots of criticism and lots of questions around where that plan should be and should head. And I think that'll be a central part of the discussion on policy. But yeah, style and personality are going to be a big part of it. And we've already seen Corey Johnson set himself up, maybe by just being who he is. I don't know how much of it's calculated, but as sort of a countervailing force on that front to Mayor de Blasio. And I think that will be a key piece. I mean, you'd put the mayor's style, or I would at least, uh, you know, style and personality in the top probably five things that people have problems with him about. Maybe the other four are policy areas. Um, you know, I thought what he said, too, about the 2021 race, about how everybody's going to be focused on the presidential election in 2020, and then you're going to basically have a seven-month sprint to because a the June primary. primary. Day, right. fascinating. I mean, you know, I've been thinking about that already, but it was interesting to hear him put it in those terms. I don't think it'll be that clear-cut. This mayoral race is going to start while the presidential race is already going, but that seven-month stretch will absolutely be the bulk of the primary. Right, right. Certainly a race behind the scenes, at least of, in terms of getting, getting money yeah. and, and consultants and things. On what policy yeah. issues happening now, I think his talk about the Charter Revision Commission was interesting. Um, a lot of different topics to talk about. I think on the planning end, you and I both arched an eyebrow, I think, at least internally, when he mentioned the Euler process and the fact that it works well, because 99% yeah. of the things come through the process without getting stopped. I don't think many people would, uh, I think many people might disagree that that is an indicator of the fact that ULERP works, that the council rubber stamps everything. Um, but it was interesting. You certainly got the sense from him that to whatever, to whatever degree he is directing the Charter Revision Commission, and we don't know how much that is. I wanted to that ask it, him that. Yeah. It is unlikely, it seems, that they're going to do anything really ambitious about the way the city does its planning. Right. No, I think absolutely there's, there's you know, this Charter Revision Commission was called together with, as he said, this idea of taking a real holistic look at the city charter and the way the city government is structured and the big processes like budgeting and land use. But I really think that most likely it's not going to offer up sweeping changes. We'll see. Um, we'll know a lot more soon. But I do agree with you that that we both had that sort of similar reaction on the ULERP conversation. But I also would think just to sort of, you know, sort of play devil's advocate a little bit, you know, he would probably respond to that and say, well, the ULERP applications don't go through as originally proposed. So it's about finding the right balance and compromise. And I think that's very much the type of elected official he is. I mean, from my understanding and some of the work we looked at, you know, when he was a rank and file city council member for the one term, he got the the projects through in his district. He negotiated and he believes in development and moving ahead and he doesn't want to be a roadblock to, to those types of proposals. So I think that is indicative of his perspective. And development is clearly going to be an issue in the next mayoral race because it's an issue in every mayoral race. Um, what do you think of his answer? We'll have about a minute left. Yeah. His answer on whether or not this presidential uh, flirtation 
vision or mm -hmm. plan is distracting the mayor from city business. You know, I think as he has been, he was fairly measured and, and somewhat generous to the mayor. I don't think he wants to be out there throwing bombs, especially when, you know, there's not a serious uh, crisis at stake, which reminds me, you know, the first thing we started on, it seems like he did sort of indicate that he agrees that the city was a little too slow on this measles outbreak, which I think was an important takeaway from the interview at the very beginning. Um, any any thoughts from you on On the on, same point, yeah. I think his mention that he's constantly in touch with deputy mayors and commissioners was just a very important point of the fact that the mayor is incredibly important, obviously, sets, sets policy, but that there is a huge apparatus in the city. Um, and I think, for better or worse, you know, things are going to be able to run not on autopilot exactly, but, you know, it is not as if everyone goes home early for lunch when de Blasio is out of the city, just something for people to keep in mind who may not be aware of the fact that this is a, it's a huge bureaucracy that uh, interacts with the legislative branch. And I'll just say quickly, you know, and yes, the mayor can manage some of this stuff from out of town, like a measles outbreak, but I don't know. I mean, when you're making these appearances in Nevada or other places and you're trying to make decisions about whether to call a health emergency in the city, I just think even if you're able to have the conference calls the mayor says he's having and be on your, your phone and your device and all that stuff, it's not quite as simple. Um, and it is, as, as Speaker Johnson said, very hard to be mayor of New York City and, and run for president at the same time. Fair point. He's Ben Max. I'm Jarrett Murphy. Get your shots and tune in to us next week on WBAI. Have a great week in the greatest city in the world.